This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 50 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Jim Routh is Chief Security Officer of Aetna, a Fortune 500 company offering healthcare, dental, pharmacy, group life, disability, and long-term care insurance and employee benefits. With annual revenue exceeding $60 billion and nearly 50,000 employees, there's a lot to secure. Our conversation explores Jim Routh's career path, the unique challenges he faces as CSO for such a large public company, and how he delegates authority and manages his time, his approach to threat intelligence, and his somewhat contrary approach to communicating with the Aetna board. He also explains his adoption of model-driven security and the rise of unconventional controls. Stay with us. Uh, Well, I owe my career in security to my wife. And the reason for that is uh, I moved my family uh, from Massachusetts out to Minnesota for back in 1998, uh, um, primarily so I didn't have to travel. So I went to work for American Express in IT. And after three years, about three and a half years, but uh, three winters, um, one night at dinner, my wife said to me, uh, the kids and I are moving back east. Do you want to come? <laughs> and that's when it became very clear that I needed to relocate. And that relocation actually landed me a job in New York, where I moved back uh, with American Express running marketing analytics, and then that was merged with risk analytics. Hmm. And that two-year, two-and-a-half-year stint uh, landed me the the role as the chief information security officer for American Express, the first one. So if it hadn't been for my wife, I don't think I would have been in security. Well, and it seems to me like the journey from marketing to security is is an interesting one. Uh, was that a lot of uh, you know uh, on the job learning for you as you went? I started and uh, had about five hundred people, and most of them were econometricians. I didn't even know what an econometrician was. Now, of course, today we call them data scientists, but ah. uh, back then I had to literally look it up and say, well, "What exactly do you guys do?" So, it turns out that uh, if we fast forward to today, um, Aetna has about 200 models in production driving frontline security controls. 70% of those models are machine learning models. So my background in data science with American Express actually has direct relevancy to cybersecurity today. Now, I would. It wasn't planned that way, but that's kind of the way it's uh, it's worked out. Data science is driving uh, a lot of our security controls today, and that's just going to continue to grow. Yeah, you know, in preparing for uh, our talk today, I was looking at some of the the facts about Aetna, and it's really uh, striking the scale of the company. You know, millions of of members, uh, millions of doctors. Uh, you know, how do you approach uh, a task, uh, a challenge when it's so big? Well, the, the one thing that's beneficial is uh, Bertolini has always maintained that the vision and the mission for Aetna is to fundamentally change healthcare to improve the health of our members, uh, and uh, and that's a pretty broad and somewhat audacious uh, mission statement, uh, and so. Our global security mission 
fits nicely within that, which is to improve the protection of information for our members as they're getting healthier. And that means across the entire healthcare ecosystem. So it's not enough for us just to uh, reduce the attack surface for Aetna. We want to reduce the attack surface for everyone in healthcare. So an example is uh, four years ago, we started a program to eliminate the use of the social security number as a unique identifier for uh, members. Hmm. We have now eliminated 10 billion instances of social security number in our enterprise and in the enterprise of our vendors and also within our plan sponsors, which are the employers that, uh, you know, that hire us to uh, administer uh, health care plans. So um, we've had a dramatic uh, impact in a positive way across the entire uh, healthcare ecosystem. Now, we got a long way to go. Uh, but uh, it's you know visibly has helped shrink the attack surface, and that's a that's a good thing for all of us. Can you uh, speak to uh, your third party suppliers? You know we hear talk about that how how that is a potential vulnerability. I mean, how do you vet your third party suppliers and make sure that they're not introducing unnecessary uh, security issues uh, for the things they provide to you? Sure. Well, third parties in healthcare and and many other industries as well, but it's certainly in healthcare represent a big part of the cybersecurity risk for an enterprise. Uh, and that's because we rely on uh, third parties to provide critical services. Uh, they provide healthcare services uh, to our members. They um, share uh, information amongst different uh, suppliers in the essentially the theater of uh, healthcare delivery. Uh, so they're essential. And the one thing we do is we don't look at them as if we're the big enterprise with the big wallet to drive uh, controls to our specifications into their environment. We view them as a member of a community. Uh, They're the member of essentially a community of third parties that offer essential services on behalf of our members. And so we educate them and share information, uh, cybersecurity intelligence information, best practices information, techniques, tools, technology. Um, So we literally have a forum every single year where we bring them together. And it's a a couple of days just to focus on education of what's changing in cybersecurity and what uh, controls are most effective and what technology and capabilities are emerging that uh, are worthwhile. So um, our uh, third-party community is divided into different uh, segments. Uh, we have brokers uh, on the front end that uh, deal with relationships with uh, uh, entities that we do business with. We have providers, healthcare providers that are, you know, their mission is to, to provide the health of our members, uh, improve that health uh, through treatment and, uh, and programs. Uh, we have uh, vendors that host uh, member information for claims processing and we have IT vendors that uh, provide critical infrastructure. So across the board, each uh, segment is a part of a portfolio with a specific set of control requirements and educational uh, programs that uh, for information sharing. So from our perspective, uh, they're all part of a community. Uh, we're, we're a member of that community, and uh, we influence what they do. But we also listen and get feedback in terms of uh, – you know, what the challenges they have, and and we try to work on solving that together. So there's nothing easy about cybersecurity 
in any enterprise. Uh, but the entire ecosystem has to fundamentally improve resiliency, and that means adjusting controls as uh, new information becomes available, new threats and threat actor tactics evolve and change. And it's a constant uh, you know, struggle to keep up with uh, all of the change, and every enterprise goes through that. So being part of a community with information sharing and uh and technology capabilities uh, to enhance resiliency, uh, it makes makes everyone better. And, and frankly, um, we have probably 550 hosting providers specifically that we rely on on a day-in, day-out basis. So it's a large uh, environment. We have probably 160,000 brokers uh, that we work with. So, and of course, uh, they have access to member information uh, through the uh, underwriting process or through the sales process, and, uh, and we want to protect that as well. So, it's third parties is uh, is a critical part of our our security program and uh, an essential partner in uh, in resiliency. Can you take us through, uh, describe a little bit for us uh, your leadership style? How how do you uh, delegate? How do you make sure that all the things that require your attention, um, how do you prioritize? Well, first and foremost, we teach technique. So there's uh, tools, um, there's technology, and there's technique, the three T's of uh, cybersecurity. And most people think talent is the most important uh, element of this of the three T's. Um, we don't believe that. We actually believe that uh, technique is the most important because, like, we don't have any problem attracting uh, world-class talent to come to work for us uh, in our program. Uh, we're fortunate in that regard. Uh, that's not the norm. The norm is, you know, there's very few highly skilled people in the marketplace that are available. Uh, from our standpoint, uh, we're able to attract not only talent, but diverse talent. We have 40% of our uh, employees in security are women. Hmm. Uh, 23% are people of color. 17% are veterans. And we strive to uh, constantly improve those. Uh, so we're not looking just for world-class talent. We're looking for world-class diverse talent. And uh, we attract them by giving them an opportunity to learn the skill and competency that they want to invest in and showing them the techniques um, that are based on um, unconventional controls. So conventional controls that are part of a standard risk framework uh, are the baseline, and they're essential, but they're not sufficient uh, today to stay and remain resilient. Uh, Unconventional controls uh, may not be part of a conventional risk framework, uh, but they're largely uh, addressed through innovation, uh, and that innovation is what allows us to constantly change our controls and create friction for the threat adversary. So we spend uh, every day 1.5 control procedures or standards are changed every single day uh, in a constant uh, uh, change. Uh, from In terms of my leadership style, um, I I teach technique, I focus on technique, and I uh, uh, essentially, I have four chief information security officers that all have responsibility for a different part of the business, in some cases, a separate subsidiary. Uh, and uh, that's their accountability. And I'm essentially giving them an opportunity to learn um, what it takes to make decisions on allocation of scarce resource to the highest risk. And they do that in the context, the context of their own business. Uh, and I give them enough uh 
you know, opportunity to learn and develop the skills necessary for communication and leadership uh, across the business. Because many of the security programs we drive are fundamentally changing, uh, changing the business. Yeah, I mean, let's dig into that a little bit. I mean, in the time that you've been on the job there, what are some of the key changes that you've seen? Probably the most significant change um, that we're introducing in terms of breadth and scope is to eliminate the use of passwords for our consumers. Now, I'll give you a little bit of context for that. It seems a little bit strange, a security function talking about eliminating uh, core control for 99% of the authentication that's done across the enterprise. So the explanation is this. In 2016, there were 3 billion credentials harvested by criminals. Mm. Uh, and the folks that did that study, Shape Security, believe that that's just based on publicly available information. And if they used all intelligence, including uh, intelligence in the private sector, uh, they think that number is closer to 10 billion. Now, what that means is the whole premise of a password is it's a secret that only you have as an individual. And unfortunately, that premise is no longer valid. And with the supply of both credentials uh, coming from breaches and phishing attacks and you know major breaches that we read about, combine that with the demographic information that's available from consumer records that are harvested you know millions uh, at a time. Uh, and the criminals have an arsenal uh, that makes it a lot easier to bypass traditional, binary authentication controls like user ID and password. There's something called credential stuffing that uh, a threat actor can use a tool like Sentry MBA and take 10,000 credentials from one domain that's been harvested or acquired in the dark web and then use it on any other domain that they wish. And they're going to get 2% hit. So 200 accounts out of the 10,000, they're going to get a hit on across any domain simply because most of us can't remember the passwords uh, that we uh, need for all of the hundreds of sites and mobile apps that we uh, put passwords into. Hmm. And the net result is credential stuffing is becoming easier and uh, more easy to do at scale. So the obsolescence of passwords is upon us. And changing out passwords for an alternative approach for authentication it's expensive it uh, takes a lot of uh, design work uh, and uh, takes a lot of time uh, to do that so we started about three years ago and we decided that multi-factor authentication wasn't enough even though it's the standard across all risk frameworks uh, it's uh, we d- we just don't believe it's uh, it's enough. So we're moving into a realm of continuous behavioral-based authentication, where we know what enough about the end user and their use of technology uh, and their behavior that we can develop a mathematical representation of that and then measure their actual behavior against that mathematical representation, see what the variance is between the two calculate that and in a risk score and the risk score feeds the app that provides access based on what that risk score is and different apps can make different decisions based on different thresholds so essentially it's a continuous authentication process it's not an event um, that once you provide the user id and, and the password you're in and trusted in the system in this case it's continuously doing authentication based on your behavior to make sure that 
someone else isn't using your credential and, and stopping that immediately. So uh, the nice thing about all of this is it means the end user, the consumer, doesn't have to remember passwords, doesn't have to worry about resetting passwords, uh, can essentially log in if you think of the login process without doing anything, just by opening the app. Uh, if it's a mobile app or going to a website, if it's a web page. So we also embraced uh, the FIDO standard that allows individuals to choose which biometric they wish to use on their device of choice. Mm. And we take that as a factor or as an attribute uh, that we feed into our risk engine, looking at many, many other attributes, somewhere between 30 and 60 attributes, whether it's a mobile or a, a web uh, application. So we're able to authenticate more effectively than passwords, yet reduce and eliminate the friction to the consumer at the same time. So it's kind of a win-win opportunity for us. And it, it's something that every enterprise will have to do in the next decade. Uh, we're getting an early start on that, and uh, so far the results are very positive. I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about uh, threat intelligence and uh, the part that that plays in the work that you do, um, how you choose to dial in the, the type and amount of threat intelligence you use. Can you give us some insights there? So, number one, um, threat intelligence is absolutely essential to a risk-driven security program. And I would argue that uh, security programs have to be risk-driven. What that means is as um, threat actor tactics change or evolve, um, we in the enterprise need to understand that and have to adjust our controls based on the evolution of the threat actor tactics. We're trying to create friction for the threat actor and reduce friction for the consumer at the same time. And um, that's an ongoing process that's fed by security intelligence. There, one thing I've learned is there is no single source for security intelligence. Now, we use private sources where we're paying for security intelligence capability and resources and essentially providing the security intelligence provider with the types of information that we're most interested in what our future plans are from a, a security standpoint and control standpoint, uh, and what our biggest risks are. And that interaction improves the quality of the security intelligence that we get that's uh, tailored to meet the needs of our particular industry. But the most important part of security intelligence comes from our peers. It's through an ISAC, uh, Information Sharing Analysis Center. Uh, we're part of uh, two uh, the NHISEC for healthcare and the FSISEC for financial services. And we work with the threat intel committees and both were part of the threat intel community. Uh, and we share information uh, amongst ourselves and we validate information we get from security intelligence providers and open source intelligence providers. And, and uh, that validation uh, helps us determine whether attacks are targeted or opportunistic and what the impact is, what controls work, what controls don't work, what information is essential. Uh, and that collective pool allows us in times of crisis, like for WannaCry and, and uh, not Petya, uh, to share malware samples, do uh, reverse engineering on malware, understand exactly what the threat vector is, and then share that information across the industry so everybody is aware of that uh, to basically improve the entire resiliency of the, uh, of the industry while uh, also protecting our own uh, enterprise. So security intelligence data 
comes from multiple sources, multiple different types. It's customized based on the individual requirements we have that we provide to the security intelligence provider. Uh, but the interaction with others that consume that information uh, uh, through different channels like the ISACs is what makes it uh, most relevant and gives us the ability to determine what the impact is for our enterprise and the overall industry. When you have to communicate the type of work that you do to the folks who are higher up in the company, you're the board members, uh, to the CEO, uh, how do you go about that translation to turn the, the technical into, I would imagine, a, a conversation about risk? I don't use translation. <laughs> okay. And uh, frankly, my view is uh, a little bit controversial, but I don't talk about risk very often. <laughs> really? <laughs> the probability of risk is very difficult to articulate at the enterprise level. Now, that's in the best of circumstances with a lot of data uh, to support the risk probability calculation. And most of the time, we don't have a lot of data uh, to support that. So actually talking about the probability of risk, especially at the board level, it's kind of a rat hole that uh, I avoid. I use the language that the board and senior business leaders are most uh, comfortable with. And that's the language of economics. Uh, so I talk about operating costs. I talk about reducing total cost of ownership. I talk about productivity gains. Uh, these are all of the things that they're well-versed in. They understand it's, it's, there's no translation required. Hmm. Uh, and I try to demystify the arcane language of uh, technology and, and uh, in-depth cybersecurity engineering to talk about business processes and how to enable uh, business processes uh, to provide better value at a lower cost, because that's what uh, board members understand. It's a language that's universal, and it works for me. Now, others would, would prefer to talk about risk and the probability of risk and quantifying that, and there's lots of tools and methodologies that help uh, do that. I My own experience is not really worthwhile. I mean, I've convinced, uh, in the case of Social Security numbers, I convinced the board and the uh, senior leaders at Aetna to do this project, which is a $67 million project, I convinced them to do it because it's the right thing to do for the consumer. There wasn't, uh, you know, I basically said there is no cost-benefit analysis. It's, you know, it's money we have to spend that we get no return on that's, that we can measure. But again, it's the right thing to do for the industry and for our members. And, uh, and I, you know, they all bought into it. And, uh, you know, I think they're grateful that they did. Uh, as a result, as an industry leader and in, uh, in shrinking the attack surface. So, um, that, now, that was one project. I mean, most of the every other project that I've ever asked for funding for, there was a cost-benefit analysis and a return on investment that was uh, identified. You know, we have a software security program that's one of the most mature in the industry, uh, measured uh, through BSIM. Well, we, we, we basically sold the program and uh, executed against the goal of improving productivity for all software development. Uh, and we have about a $21 million gain in productivity uh, every year uh, because we either reduce vulnerabilities through preventative uh, steps or we fix vulnerabilities earlier in the life cycle. The combination of those two things adds to significant productivity enhancement, and that makes the program worthwhile from an investment management standpoint. So notice I didn't say anything about risk. Uh, and and so uh, that's kind of my approach. Yeah, that, I mean, that's interesting because it, it is a little contrary to, I think, 
what is this, I suppose uh, is it what is popular today. So I, I, that's very uh, insightful for me to hear your description of that. It certainly makes sense, uh, but that's not a not a direction that I hear very many people talk about uh, these days. So you know, I, I think that's fascinating. Good for you, uh, and it seems to be working well for you. The future of cybersecurity actually happens to be here today, but most cybersecurity professionals aren't aware of it, and it's largely because the technology is creeping up on them, um, and it's not self-evident. But what's happening to security is we're moving into a world or a realm where uh, model-driven security is an essential component for the resilient enterprise, and our threat actors are using models and data science to attack uh, the enterprise. So it's model versus model. Now I'll start from the good guy side. Hmm. Um, About three and a half years ago, I hired a chief data scientist dedicated to security, very talented guy, had nine years of experience in the NSA where he worked on security uh, using data analytics. And I asked him, at the time I thought it was the right thing to do, I asked him, build us a data lake uh, for the enterprise, for security, that uh, we could run models against and figure out where to allocate our scarce resources to do cyber hunting to get the best bang for the buck. Seemed to make sense. You know, a lot of people said, yeah, yeah, that's that's worthwhile. That's a good application of data science. Well, while he did that, and he did an outstanding job of that, built 106 models uh, in uh, you know, about a year and a half's time, uh, while he did that and did exactly what I asked him to do, we implemented eight other implementations in production of models. These are unsupervised machine learning models driving frontline security controls, Hmm. whether it's authentication or privilege user management uh, or uh, email filtering or endpoint protection. Uh, These are all cases where we implemented the technology. It's driving frontline security controls. So it's not just producing data and results that we're analyzing, it's actually part of the fabric of the control. So today, privileged user monitoring is an example. We, uh, Every single registered user in the network has a behavioral score based on four different types of uh, behavior, uh, physical access, email, web, browsing, uh, entitlement information, all combined, massive you know, data lake that was established, bunch of models that represent that numerically. So each individual registered user has that when they ask for a privilege and we don't have we don't grant privileges indefinitely with everything has a time frame in terms of every privilege and when they get a privilege we measure their actual behavior against the pattern we see any deviation if it's a slight deviation we send an email to their boss who has the context to know what they should be doing and when and their boss decides if it's good or bad the green button in the email says that's okay if it's a red button they hit that and it the the the, uh, credential is automatically revoked Uh, But if there's a number of anomalies in terms of anomalistic events, the model decides to revoke privilege immediately in real time without any human intervention and initiates uh, orchestration for a security incident. Again, no human intervention. and allows us to essentially revoke privilege in milliseconds in real time in the case of a threat. I know of no other system in the world that has that uh, across the entire enterprise. We've had it in place for about a year and a half. That's one example of what was put in place that's essentially a model, in this case, several models, driving frontline security controls. And we're seeing that more and more. We have 200 models in production today. 
uh, and we're all we're constantly growing that uh, that model uh, that catalog of models. So, I see very in the very near future, two three years down the road, where we'll be actually sharing models from one enterprise to another to deploy effective security controls uh, across enterprises. Models and data science today represents the foundation of cybersecurity for the next decade. That's Jim Ralph. He's the chief security officer at Aetna. And we thank him for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.